show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Experience, business, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Consumer first health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status. No. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, and here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about looking back and sharing gratitude. How do we break away from the day-to-day demands on our time to be grateful for how far we've come? I'll talk about that. Then we continue our 2023 Predictions series, where we're inviting pairs of all-star guests to share their predictions for consumer transformation in the coming year and beyond. This week, we welcome Paul Keckley, Managing Editor of the Keckley Report, and Chris Hemphill, Senior Director of Commercial Intelligence at Wobot Health. Paul and Chris take us all across the landscape to discuss how they expect hospitals and health systems to respond to financial pressures and calls to become more consumer-centric. How can we be more courageous with tackling public policy, bias in healthcare data, and the mental health of our nation? It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the Week. Gratitude is a powerful emotion that's a common attribute among the happiest members of society. It can literally rewire your brain. And so it's with gratitude that I look back at a year that has changed the course of society, the healthcare industry, and this podcast. And it all starts with one of my favorite places in the world. A few weeks ago, I hiked the Grand Canyon from rim to river and back in a single day. It's a total of 18 miles and 4,400 feet of elevation gain, and we did it in about 10 hours. My wife tells me the Grand Canyon is my happy place, and I have to agree. I've hiked either rim to rim or rim to river every year for the last four years, and I've learned that it's something that words and pictures can't describe, even when it's 18 degrees at the trail. At a couple of points during this year's hike, I caught myself focusing so much on our destination and how far we still had to go that I almost missed some incredible moments, like the first ray of light as the sun rose above the canyon walls, the reflection of the cliffs and the green waters of the Colorado River at the bottom, and a deer snacking on the canyon foliage not five feet off the trail. The most harrowing part, of course, comes on the way back up. Those final few miles exiting the canyon are where you pay for the view on the way down. About three miles from the end, there was a particular switchback where I could see the last several miles of the trail that we had taken, almost all the way back down to the river. Now, part of me thinks I just wanted to take another breather, but I remember taking an extra moment on that switchback to pause, look around, and just be grateful for the experience. It was a memorable hike, and for the record, if anyone wants to check the Grand Canyon off your bucket list, I have a guest room, and I'm only a short three-hour drive from the South Rim. Seriously, hit me up. Now back to -to day-to-day life. And if you're like me at all, you find yourself so fully immersed by the day-to-day work and your pursuit of change in the industry and your goal of finding meaning in your work that it can be easy to forget to look back at how far you've come. Sometimes we miss those switchbacks and those moments pass us by as we're on to the next text message, the next email to answer, or the next LinkedIn post to respond to. So before I get immersed and inevitably distracted again and miss this moment, let me share how grateful I am for you and your pursuit of a healthcare that's easier, a healthcare that's more convenient, more trusted, more connected, less expensive, less confusing, 
and ultimately more consumer friendly. Being able to fully pivot this podcast has been a major milestone. We saw a gap in talking about disruption from the consumer's point of view. So now we're working hard to fill that gap. Next month, we'll reach episode number 250. A couple of months after that, we'll begin year number five. We have a community, the Consumer First Health Group, that voluntarily meets every month and together creates a conversation that none of us could on our own. And that conversation will be turning into actions soon enough. More on that in the coming year. But let me leave you with a quote from the Consumer First Health Manifesto that the community published in October. As a community of professionals involved in the consumer transformation of healthcare, we applaud the efforts of many clinicians and business leaders who are actively working to improve the experience for consumers and patients. We wish to add to these efforts by bringing about the long-term alignment of business systems, corporate culture, and financial incentives around consumers' expressed and unexpressed needs. We wish to catalyze these changes and accelerate their impact with a sense of urgency and purpose. We believe that this effort is not only necessary, but that it is one of the most significant contributions that we can make on behalf of our industry and society. So there you go, folks. We're going to get there, and we're going to get there faster together. The time is right now. And let's not wait another year to look back again. Let's give gratitude for what we're doing and how it's making an impact all along the way. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. All right, let's get into the flow. Today, we continue our prediction series. This is going to wrap up the year, and I am so excited. Our first guest today is Paul Keckley, managing editor of the Keckley Report. He's a very widely known industry expert. Paul, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. We're also pleased to welcome Chris Hempill. Welcome back, Chris. Good to be with you again, Jerry. Chris is the Senior Director of Commercial Intelligence at Wobot Health. They provide the world's first mental health ally for people and businesses with scalable, meaningfully engaged AI-powered therapeutic solutions. Super cool stuff. Paul, let's start with you. What else would you like our listeners to know? We'll just do a quick little bio. Nothing really. I just study this thing. <laughs> I love how understated this is. Chris, this is gonna be this is gonna be a lot of fun. We're gonna have to, you know, people will be very aware of, of Paul's worldview here. But what about yourself, Chris? Anything else about your bio or background you'd like our listeners to know? Uh, yeah, uh, really, Jared, Paul, thankful to uh, be a part of this conversation. And I just like any opportunity for us to sit back and think about not just 2023, but take a broad view into not just how we're going to build it, uh, build it to next year, but how all that's going to connect into the overall future of healthcare. And I'll give my two cents and all, but I'll defer to Paul on, on a lot of the tougher questions. <laughs> we'll start with one of those tougher questions then. And it's more of a setup question anyway, because, you know, just as a reminder, we, we just want to have some fun with this. We want to offer some predictions and we're going to focus on this whole thing called consumer transformation. We're going to look at it from a few different angles. And I wonder if we can just kind of start with kind of framing the discussion with the situation situation that traditional providers are in. So hospitals and health systems, to say the least, they're having to respond to some historically challenging financial pressures. And then at the same time, there are all these calls for them to become more consumer centric. So Paul, let's start with you on this. How do hospitals and health systems, how do they even respond to all those pressures and where might they go from here? Well, I mean, the overarching context for that answer is What's the economy going to look like next year in which hospitals have to navigate continued negative operating income from workforce and prescription drug costs and everything else 
the CBO says the uh, GDP will be flat next year. We'll still have inflation with us. Powell will probably increase uh, the borrowing rate another half a percent this month. So you go into next year as a hospital leader and you think, I hear all this consumer stuff. But right now, the consumers that I'm going to pay most attention to are the people that work for me. We forget they're also consumers. We forget that their cost of living and their wages are being eaten up by inflation. And the consumer outside the hospital, the community, who have, you know, the data shows 15% of the households have an unpaid medical bill, 40% have a problem paying a $500 surprise bill, and so on. So economics flavors a hospital CEO's response to that question, consumer-centric healthcare. What's that really mean for me when I'm telling my board I've got to get as many butts in the bed as I can, I've got to find ways to keep the doctors happy, and my operating income is shriveled to nothing. I do think there are two areas where there's an immediate response that is important. One is uh, we really need to monitor closely the patient experience. As you know, in the various measures of hospital performance, the HCAP scores, some of the data around avoidable readmissions, avoidable complications and things, it correlates very directly to the expectations of patients about the care they should get in a hospital and then did get. So they have to monitor patient experience very, very closely and determine, you know, when somebody pushes a call button and it's not answered as quickly as they think it should, uh, how do you mitigate some of that realizing you're short of staff? The second area is kind of this digital connectivity, especially around routine, preventive, and primary care, results of tests, and mental health. Mental health is proven to be sticky in the realm of telehealth. Consumers prefer it, especially young Gen Y and millennials and a lot of working folks. So that's where if I'm a CEO, I'm saying, let's make sure people are not leaving our place unhappy. And am I deploying my tele-capabilities in areas where it can make a big difference. That, to me, would be what would be at the top of my list. Excellent. Chris, uh, Paul just mentioned mental health having a place in that plan and that strategy. I'm very curious what you think about all this. So overall, and I appreciate the uh, the answer, Paul, I've been thinking about this consumer experience, kind of, kind of like the calls for increased consumerism in healthcare aren't recent. And it's, I mean, it's something that, that we've seen and heard year after year after year. And I think that there's some leaders out there, there's a lot of digital transformation efforts that have made some progress in that direction. But when you look at it more broadly and you ask yourself, what is a consumer? And if you start thinking about the way other industries view us, such as retail, travel, and all these other sectors that have fully embraced consumerism. But when you look at, when you ask the question, what is a consumer? The way those other industries look at me is in terms of things like lifetime value or my propensity for repeat purchases and things like that. So these are all industries that look at me and look at us as how much money can they extract? How much share of wallet can they consume from us versus other industries? So even though consumerism has things like convenience and things like that, I think that within healthcare, there's a a deeper way that we should be thinking about this. And I've had conversations with uh, leaders recently 
at firms that are looking at more value-based approaches. I feel like the consumerism approach is the hallmark, like the high end of a fee-for-service world. But as we migrate and we, we see more of these institutions, like finally figuring out ways to address whole health, figuring out the, the cost structures and things like that, unaddressed mental health issues. As we start putting more of those pieces together, as we start looking at social determinants or lifestyle factors and uh, overall changing the incentive and payment structures to where we're addressing whole health rather than that, that fee-for-service modality, I think that organizations that are embracing this overall change in incentive structures and payment models, I think that they have an opportunity, like when we're looking at a whole health perspective, to get at something that's deeper than this consumeristic mindset of how do we get as much money, get as many repeat visits or people using our services over and over again as much as possible. So I think that as organizations experiment under these payment models and, and find successful ways to do this profitably, we'll be looking at something deeper and better than the experiences that we have gotten in retail banking, which I, I never have fun with uh, any of those things. Well, I like that. I think that's a really important direction to think through as you're talking about the long slog towards a more lasting version of value-based care, if you will, more entities, more organizations actually doing it enough to a point where it actually makes sense on their balance sheet, which a lot of organizations are still struggling with because they're just dipping their toe in the water. I want to unpack that a little bit more because we're a B2B industry. We're not a B2C industry. We've built our whole economic model around every part of the supply chain, passing costs through and being marked up at the next level in the system. And then ultimately, the consumer pays a small piece of the cost, which has been the pushback from the hospitals about price transparency and this and that. So while consumers have preferences and values about the healthcare system, there is a disconnect between how they define value and how, as an economic system, we would define value. Value is the relationship between what you pay and what you get. What is not now clear to the consumer is what's the total cost of that care. So the next iteration of consumerism will be kind of premised on the notion that we have to expose consumers to the total cost of their care we have to be able to give them choices, and we have to be able to compare the values that various cohorts in the population ascribe to the various options in front of them. So do they pay more because there's a better result that they sought? It's not a one-size-fits-all. And uh, what I found fascinating when I'm studying higher ed, the banking industry, and other industries that have gone through some pretty serious transformation. It's been technologies that was the difference maker. It's technologies that put basically bank tellers out of business and travel agents out of business. And it enabled a different consumer experience, which took cost out of their systems. So we're still, I mean, there's a ton of money being invested in digital health from venture capital. It's also the stock for those investments is down almost 40% this year. And that's because we're still trying to figure out how do we engage consumers to be active purchasers of their own care until and unless we get there. And this is not necessarily for all the big ticket items, but it can even be for the routine stuff. Consumerism is going to be kind of a 
a discussion around certain low acuity problems or discretionary purchases rather than the bulk of the spending in the system. And we're a long way from that. So we're going to get there, but we're just not there yet. Thank you for that. Yeah, the thought of of being able to connect all these dots is so important. And that's actually related to something that you shared, Paul, in a in a webinar earlier this year, uh, a webinar that you did for Actium Health. And I wonder if I could just share a couple sentences from that and, and have your reaction to see if this, this is kind of still what you're seeing or what you feel like might happen. So in that webinar, you talked about kind of a, a bifurcation of the system. And this is what you said. Uh, We've got to start building the system of the future instead of just feeding an incremental change and calling that innovation. We're not innovating in consumer-driven healthcare. We're just putting a new coat of paint on it. Let's go all the way. That's the way other systems of the world have evolved into a bifurcation between a consumer-directed semi-private system and a public system. And I think that's where we're going. Close quote. So long-term, do you still see us headed towards this this bifurcated system? Yeah, I mean, if you look at other developed systems of the world, we used to look at this in the White House and look at ways of measuring the consumer experiences and the out-of-pocket cost and accessibility and things like that. In most other developed countries of the world, where you've got a modern healthcare system and so on, there are about 35 of them. What has evolved has been a bigger and bigger public system where the hospitals and the doctors contract with the government for payment and provide services. Many times they're employed or owned by the government. And then a small but significant amount of the population buys through essentially a kind of a concierge model in which they get services different than that they value more than the services that you can get through the public system. And you can see that in Ireland and the the NHS and France and Eastern Europe. And and, and it tends to split along the lines of, one, socioeconomics. People with higher incomes tend to migrate toward that model. But second, it also is attractive to younger and healthier populations that have embraced what you described as whole person care or the integration of physical and mental health, thalamic care, nutrition, kind of a whole person view of health. And those younger people are migrating to that, especially in urban communities. So those are the two populations that probably move toward a much more consumer value-centric model than populations that will follow the government funding model. Uh, those are very important pieces of this puzzle to understand, and I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, this can be as many in some, I've looked at it in certain parts of Mexico and other countries, this can be as low as 10% of a population to as many as 30%, depending on which country you're in. So it's not an insignificant part of the market that will migrate to a much more consumer-driven model of health services and private insurers will be essentially customizing products that are sold to fund their purchases. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Chris, I feel like this is another dimension of the discussion, but I know you're an advocate for identifying and addressing bias in health data and all the ramifications of that and how these things are not new. The challenges and the problems that have been identified are not new, and yet it still seems very, very important for us to continue to shine a light on this so that we can see some progress. What progress do you expect we can see in this area? So one thing that 
is important to answering that question is to uh, sit a little bit on what Paul just said with regards to the bifurcation in how people will access and engage healthcare services and their providers. If we look at how we talked about segments and how we split populations in the past, we'd be very concerned with overall average spending and things like that. And then as we were able to look further and segment the data more as more powerful systems became available for us to do that and, and data of a higher quality entered, then, we, then you bring segmentation to the game where you have bands where you're looking at different underlying factors like age, race, and then more and more data comes in when we start integrating EMRs into the picture and we can start getting very specific all the way down to past conditions and like getting more granular in how we're looking at data. So if we're looking at the overall bias picture, when you're when you're looking at overall averages you're missing a lot of detail in terms of well how does this outcome we're looking at good outcomes we're looking at an algorithm that performs extremely well overall but when we split it out into people who have had a particular condition in the past or people from a particular socioeconomic status or background then we start seeing that different things, different models perform differently for people based on their race, their gender, etc. I think that as we become more sophisticated, as these differences, as we understand that these algorithms perform differently on different populations and start focusing on solving that, then when it comes down to the people that are more likely to engage the consumerism type services versus the people that are going down that that government guided path what we're doing with data is being able to understand who these people are what their preferences are and being able to fit that model more specifically now isn't something that's just going to come at random there are certain firms certain leaders who are aware of biases that occur within algorithms and take measures to address that. And, and, and there are those that aren't, or honestly, a lot of uh, like some people I've, I've heard from, and it just seems like a lot of people have their, their heads buried on, on, under the sand over this. But I think that as, as we become more sophisticated, as people more understand these issues, the main guiding force that will push us more towards what we call a responsible AI and transparent AI, you're seeing parts of it happen. I just uh, attended a uh, session from Health and Human Services where they were talking about how they're addressing biases with their own algorithms. They're setting up models that other industries can follow, have standards like the, the AI Bill of Rights that outline what the consumer's role is in the ownership of their data and how, how AI is being used. So we're at the beginning of certain firms, certain organizations really beginning to understand this, address it, and take it seriously. But I think that the most powerful driving force it always comes back down to economics. Uh, there are certain firms that might have been just going about it because it's because it's the right thing to do. But as we switch into more value-based models, I, I've been seeing more conversations and more interest in health equity conversations overall. And the organizations that now have that financial charge to address their gaps in health equity and make sure that underserved populations are now receiving care. I think that those kinds of economics are going to drive the interest. Like debiasing algorithms and things like that isn't wild and radical technology, but it's a change in overall economic forces and incentives 
that's going to drive certain organizations down that direction. This is a piece I feel like a lot of stakeholders are still trying to understand the ramifications. I think people understand on a surface level and to understand fully how a lot of these things are related is, is going to be an important part of where we go from here. So yeah, I, I was really glad for you to unpack it that at that level. Let's touch on a couple of other things here before we go. I wanted to know if you wanted to predict which big tech or big retail brand that we'll be talking about the most. So basically any non-traditional health system would count for this. Any brand that you think we'll be talking about the most in 2023? Okay. And, and no health tech company included, just big tech in general? No, we can include a health tech company. That, that's fine. Okay. Well, even though I asked that question, I was trying to get away from this answer because it, it's too easy and generic, but it just feels like Google is uh, inserting itself into the conversation a whole lot more. Just And maybe I'm just biased by having uh, been at health and seeing a number of partnerships at high and low levels with regards to various healthcare technologies. Google basically sweep the show with, uh, with announcing various healthcare uh, partnerships. I think that their role in that and uh, their role in pushing for interoperability standards, I think that they're trying to make a uh, play here that will have them as uh, part of the conversation from a tech perspective. The other easy am answer is uh, Amazon, but I'll hand over the microphone. All right, Paul, what do you think? Well, I'm, you know, you can think Amazon and you can put Microsoft and Facebook and even what Oracle's doing with Cerner and things like that on that list. But I think the story of next year will be how Optum executes its strategy, which includes strong technology dependence, strong data-driven self-care technologies. It includes the integration of both financing and delivery. They've got a grand scheme of being in the delivery of services business in various models. And I think Optum at $400 billion is a company of scale that will force everyone in the system to respond. They've been careful about their capital bets in markets. Andrew Witte, in laying out his strategy just a couple of weeks ago, basically said it's scorched earth for us. We're not looking for attaboys. We're not looking for making top 100 lists of this or that. We're looking for long term sustainability. And for us, that means critical mass, scale and scope, and technology deployment that reduces unit costs, which is key because the cost drivers will be what keep people alive and the ability to respond to affordability and price is going to be the difference between plans that are never executed and the people that end up winning in this business. And I think they're in a position where they can do that. They take no prisoners, they execute well, and they have made good on their bets. Excellent. I think it's hard to bet against Optum and Google. So, all right, we're going to wrap up with this last one. And I'd like to think this is kind of the opportunity for us to apply and dig even beyond what we see in the headlines and what the implications are. But for us personally, usually each of us in the healthcare industry, and I know this applies to both of you, we have a reason that we are in this industry. And that means we do have hope for where things can go and how they can improve and change from here. So, Paul, I'll start with you on this one. What do you hope is the net result of these trends? Everything we've been talking about, all the things we've been predicting. Where do you hope it gets us as an industry and more importantly, as a society? 
we can start with the next 12 months, but even beyond that, I just wonder, like, where do we hope all this leads us? And then Chris, if you want to jump in after Paul. We need solutions that cut across the entire population and systems that are not barricaded by sectarian walls or regulations that make it harder to access certain things and not others. That would mean it's not a healthcare system that's void of public health interest. Other systems of the world integrate their social services programs with their healthcare programs. The U.S. does not. So I envision a system of health that's not health or human services, but it's health and human services. And yeah, just to uh, piggyback on that, like I really want to see a greater integration of what we, we call it behavioral health or mental health. I, I like to think of it as mental health and well-being, but a, a greater integration of that as kind of a linchpin in, in understanding th- these whole person perspectives. So rather than it taking eight years for somebody to find out an accurate diagnosis to to a mental health issue or having needs go unaddressed for extremely long times. I'd like to see a system where people are able to identify these needs and challenges early. And I think that that fits in to this concept of systemness in healthcare. I see it a lot in terms of conversations where uh, people are focused on behavioral health integration, and they've adopted the term BHI for that. But ultimately, if we go beyond looking at mental health as like a set of DRG codes and a set of specific diagnoses and really just looking at at people's lives and just where they are as people and and being able to intervene early as people have, have, have challenges, even before there's any kind of diagnosis that can be administered, that's the kind of system where I would like to see is how can technology enable us to get closer to, to that whole person perspective rather than just looking at us as a, a set of codes or as I mentioned earlier, looking at us as a potential dollars for uh, revenue numbers. Well, what a great place to kind of put all this together, because like you said, this has to do with how we see each other and how each entity within the system and the structure views the other people, namely providers, patients, of course, uh, everyone else, administrators, everyone involved. And I love what we've been able to do with the two of you here just over the last few minutes of connecting so many dots and understanding that this broader view is really what's going to help get us to the places that you just talked about. So I just want to say uh, thank you so much. That's going to do it for this episode. We're going to keep an eye on these trends and we're going to see how they play out in the coming year. And maybe we can do like a, you know, a follow up next year and just, you know, look at, hey, here's what we thought and, and here's where things are going. But either way, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Paul Keckley and Chris Hempel. So much fun. Uh, so much to think about. Thank you. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it, Jared. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.